Welcome back. So this is the uh, panel discussion time, and uh, I've got a stack of questions. We had a um, group of scholars that went through these. They are, they are all seminary grads. They, they picked the smartest questions. Um, the first one, and this is really indicative, I think, of, um, of their, uh, how much they worked on this during the breaks here, is, Ravi, how is your back? desperately on this stool right now. <laughs> uh, am I wired? I thought I turned it on. How about now? No? Let's see. Shows it on. Now, yep, here yep, we go. Yep. Good. All right. Delayed response. Fixed. My back's doing fairly well. I struggle with it. I have to live one day at a time with it. Um, I've had two major surgeries, one in 02 that got me all wired up with eight bolts and screws and two metal rods about eight inches straddling my spine and had another laminectomy this year. So do keep praying. I'm doing well today. I'm doing well. You just take it one day at a time. And um, the pain can become quite uh, emotionally tiring. But you have to face up to it. And um, it's not slowed me down. I'm still doing over 200 days a year on the road, maybe... Common sense would tell me there's a cause and effect, but I'll try and <laughs> figure out the law of deduction some other time here. <laughs> well, another question for you, maybe um, a little more on topic today. Uh, when we've shared the gospel, and, um, and really a question for both of you, when we've shared the gospel and, and the person that we've, that we've shared with has outrightly rejected, what's the next step? Where do we go from there? Loan him some money. <laughs> I'm going to write a few of these out. Is there, a, is there a dollar amount you recommend? Well, I'm sure Wade would have equal um, I don't have say in that. <laughs> but, you know, when, when growing up in India, you and I'm sure Wade noticed this in Nepal too, one of the things you take into evangelism as a necessary component in those cultures is time. Unfortunately, there was a period of time in the 50s and 60s when evangelism became so easy that you could share the gospel in five minutes under a tree somewhere and show some pictures and so on, and somebody would say, that describes me, and you'd pray with them, and they would come to know the Lord. It was kind of a... Uh, the harvest was uh, so plentiful at that time. And once you've reaped the easy pickings, there are stubborn ones that take a little longer. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, Thailand, for many, many decades, I used to consider that a graveyard for evangelists. My wife will tell you when I came back once from Thailand, I said, I don't want to ever preach there again. You could speak all you wanted. And it was, they have a saying in Thailand, my Rai, never mind, never mind. They'd sit and look at you and wondering, wonder what you're really asking them to do or talking about. It was like a blank wall. Today, Thailand is experiencing a tremendous harvest, really. For the first time, I think, in its history, they've seen things like this. And so I would just say uh, what Wade was saying, you know, you're, you're there for them. You're there to be a friend to them. You're there to demonstrate the love of Christ and ask them the right questions. It's the Spirit of God that changes the heart. 
And you'll be surprised when they do come, what they will tell you with the links. You know, it's about the stories that I often hear, somebody will say to me, you know, I had a neighbor like this, or I had a professor like that, or I had a friend like that. And the, if you talk to the neighbor or the professor or the friend, they would have had no idea they'd had this kind of an impact on them. So I would just say time is a necessary component. Just think of how long it took our Lord to shape 12. You know, some of them would never have made it into our deaconate or diaconate or our elders board today. They were some pretty rough-hewn guys. But the Lord patiently prepared the wineskin, poured in the new wine, and don't give up hope that soon. One more example. Every time, anywhere I am, I get about 10 messages a day from a Hindu gentleman, former Hindu. Today, too, while I was standing there buzzing, buzzing, and he's wanting to know how the meetings are going. For one year, every week he met and would come to our home. And my wife said to me, why are you wasting your time with this guy? He's asking the same questions again and again. I said, because he comes from India. We go in circles. Everything, you, we go this way. You know, you think you've already answered that and you just go through the same thing again. Finally, a year later came, came and then at one point he said, I'm ready. And his wife looked at him and said, are you sure? And he said, yes. She said, I will too if we go back home and call both of our parents tonight and tell them what we've done. And he just looked at her and that was the end of that. He said, why can't we wait to tell them? She said, no, I'm not going to play that game. If it happens, I'm going to tell them. Middle of the week, he called me. He said, can we come back? He came back and he said, we're ready. And he gave his life to the Lord. And it's a remarkable story of growth in grace and what the cross means to him. One day I said to him point blank, and he's heard me on tape say these things. I said, Anurag, your nuisance value has become very high. <laughs> because you're every day, every day, I know him well enough to say that. And he said, sir, you created this monster, now you feed it. <laughs> I said, no, God changed your heart and find ways for him to feed you and others who do the same thing and so on. The point being, it would have been very easy to give up. And just don't. Uh, be the salt and light. And if they say they are through with you, just continue to live it till they open the conversation again, and they will. Uh, Wade is absolutely right. The uncertainty just keeps on prompting conversations, no matter where you are. It's so uncertain, they want to talk about it. But as a pastor, I'm sure you have even more insights into that way. Yes, I have more insights than you, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not, but I, I, I agree with what I've heard. The only thing I would ans uh, add to that is, of course, to some extent, it depends a little bit upon the relationship that you're in. For example, it took my brother quite some time uh, to believe, and, uh, and quite frequently, not always, but quite frequently, something I said at lunch, you know, methinks he does protest too much. Some of the people that Ravi in his lecture mentioned having become Christians, I had prayed for in UK and even corresponded with, and uh, they were a nasty piece of work, not very friendly at all. And uh, I think it really would have not been God's will for us to have written them off simply because of their anger at us. In fact, I think that their anger was a symptom 
that they um, were struggling against the living God. And so I know that one can be tempted in cert certain situations to stop. The Lord Jesus himself taught his disciples to move on and wipe the dust off the feet of their sandals. But I don't think that that's kind of a universal strategy for how we're supposed to be. We're not all itinerant for one thing. And so I would say that, uh, how, how would I wrap it up? I would say that we should be incarnational and be as patient with our neighbors as the Lord Jesus has been with me. And that has been extreme. <laughs> um, Wade, sometimes we feel the urgency of giving uh, as much or all of the gospel as we can when we're sharing because we don't know if we're going to get another opportunity. So what do you share when you get only one opportunity with a person? Yeah, that's a... That's a very good point, and I think it was a misunderstanding one brother shared with me after uh, uh, this last lecture that I used to do that thing that you were endorsing, you know, start with Genesis and go through the whole thing. What I was saying this morning about doing the gospel of the kingdom, it, it's not that at an individual sitting that we go through, you know, creation, fall, redemption, judgment, and consummation. It's just that that is our whole backstory, that we're eager and willing to talk about different portions of that when it's right. I want us to not just talk about forgiveness of individual sin. However, and this does happen to me sometimes, someone does come in or I have an opportunity really to share very briefly. And then I would, uh, at that point, I probably would tell something very similar to that story that I did this morning. But it would have the backstory of making sure that they understood that this isn't something that doesn't affect their lives. I'll just give one, one, one example. Uh, the guy who pulls pints at my pub in England one day <clears throat> knew who I was and said, uh, I'm thinking about reading the Bible. Okay, what would you answer? <laughs> kind of jujitsu uh, jitsu evangelism. I said, I, this is really what I said, don't do it. <clears throat> and he said, why? And I said, I did that once and look what it's never let me go, right? Every aspect of my life has been changed and it's, you know, don't do it. And he said, well, I will, you know, and then <laughs> made the mistake of doing so. And I'm going to spend eternity with that guy, evidently, you know. <clears throat> Ravi, uh, in what ways, you talked a lot about the barriers, in what ways uh, as a church do we break down the barriers to evangelism? I think the church is the best place um, for the community to act as a whole. We do it individually as we travel, but if there's one thing that the postmodern mind still longs for, it's community. And I think the idea of a community of worshipers is a powerful evangel. Worship, a worshiping community may be the most powerful form of evangelism today. I have had so many people come to the Lord from just being in a room where you've prayed for them. It is an amazing thing for people who don't know how to even verbalize their aloneness and their loneliness when they hear you talking to God in prayer. I've seen total skeptics with tears running down their eyes. Um, there was a well-known, there is a well-known prominent Academy Award-winning actor whom I didn't know happened to be staying in a hotel where my wife and I were staying. And he asked if he could chat for a little while. And his life is just a complete mess in his background. But he was so full of himself as we were having breakfast, he wouldn't even give me a chance to talk. He was just all over the place. Brilliant guy. 
And then at one moment I just said, before I even try to deal with all this, can we pray together? He was totally surprised. And he said, go ahead. So I just took him by the arm, he's a pretty big guy, and uh, prayed that the Lord would restore to him the years that the locusts had eaten. And prayed for what he had just shared with me. When I finished, there were tears just running down his face, which told me he is longing for a place like that where he can express his hurt and know that he's being heard. That's what the community of God is all about. They come to a place where they bear their souls and they are heard and they join in worship because they have been released and relieved from it. So I think it is a multifaceted approach. Young people, youth, especially junior highs, very critical age bracket. We have to start breaking that, those barriers down early. By the time they're in their senior year, senior teens, they're already in a salvage operation for themselves. They've gone too far. So a strong junior high department in the church, children's department, I think meeting our youth transparently, not in a manufactured syndrome, good music, solid preaching, it's not gonna take any one thing, it's gonna take taking the gospel seriously in its intimations of reality. And that's why I think the pastor's job today is the most difficult job in the world because knowledge is gaining at such an extraordinary rate it's very hard for a pastor to keep up with it all and continue to do what a church is called to do. But you know, I get so many calls in my office, which church would you recommend in this city? Which church would you recommend in that city? Because people are looking for a place where they can worship, not just a rally that they can go to, where they can be part of a community and share. So it's a, it's a pivotal time for leaders to be before God and be before their people. It's a joint effort. It's not one leader's effort. Ravi, how do you approach a good, a good person who doesn't feel guilt or shame? There are a lot of people like that, in, um, especially in works-oriented religions. I don't know how many times on a university campus, no matter what I'm speaking on, somebody will stand up and they think they're waiting for the moment to finish you off. And as soon as you finish, they stand up and say, are you telling me Mahatma Gandhi is in hell? I would never have mentioned Gandhi. I would never have mentioned hell. I don't, know. I don't even know how they got to that question from what I said. And uh, I'm prepared for that. Uh, you have to be very wise how you answer a question like that. I will just say to them, are you telling me there are human beings in this world who are too good for God's forgiveness. I said, can you tell me the answer to that question? That you have seen people who are so good who do not need God to forgive them. I said, the whole sequence of the Old Testament story, I say, is redemption, righteousness, and then worship. You cannot be righteous until you're redeemed. You cannot worship until you're redeemed and righteous. For who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? But he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. I say to them, Mahatma Gandhi made a comment that many of you may not know. He said this in his book, The Search for the Supreme. It is a constant source of frustration to me that the peace I am ever seeking keeps on eluding me. 
I say the reason we all seek peace is because we are broken before God and there's only one way to be healed and that is to gain God's forgiveness. If you think you're too good for God, you will allow God the prerogative of judging you on your own terms and leave it at that. C.S. Lewis said there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who bend their knee to God and say to him, your will be done. And those who refuse to bend their knee and God says to them, all right, then your will be done. There are people like that. Our ministry actually is geared towards the happy pagan. And what we try to do is plant questions in their mind that they know they have to ask. And invariably, they have never given themselves coherent answers on that. Jesus asked his questioners questions to open them up within their own assumptions. And every time he countered their question with another question, they probably said, why on earth did I get this going? <laughs> because they couldn't answer it too. Can you give an example of, of the questions that you're asking of the, the happy pagan? Yes. Uh, I mentioned one yesterday, for example. And one of the questions I often give the illustration of is like Jesus, when he questioned the questioner who said, good master, what should I do to attain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There's none but good but God. What he's really saying is, are you calling me God? If you're calling me God, are you aren't going to listen to me? And if you're telling me you can be good apart from God, can you explain yourself? This is the implication of something like that. People would say to me something like, a person would stand up from the floor and say, what's wrong with such and such a sexual practice? And you can tell at that moment the whole audience is perched on the edge of their seats wondering, is this whole thing going to be blown to smithereens right now? And I would say to them, I can help you answer this question if you can help me answer one I have for you that presupposes your question. Is there anything wrong with anything? Is there anything wrong with anything? That helps me to understand what you mean when you say what is wrong with if you tell me if there's anything wrong with anything, you'd be amazed how many people are stymied by that. And you're not doing that to stump them. You're doing that to open up the point of discussion at a place where you lead reasonably from the ways of thinking to the particulars of application, rather than the particular, particularity of application without justifying why you think that way. Wade, you're nodding your head and... I'm thinking about walking across the street in my cul-de-sac and, um, and starting to ask questions of the, the happy suburbanite pagan. What does that look like? Well, I would think that uh, in the South, the first thing to, that needs to go is you have to get what real hospitality is uh, because uh, my culture suffers from you can't have people over until your house is perfect and that sort of thing. Well, what you really want to do is to have people over and see what your life is actually like. And uh, as you get to know someone, probably the first thing to do is to, to share from your own situation and your own pain the things that actually aren't going very well and endure their, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, um, the kind of advice that they might give you because that's how it feels to them also. But you'd be surprised that if we're honest with someone about our own lives, our own struggles at work and in our marriage and with our children, that they then become much more likely over time to tell you about theirs. And then you can begin talking you know, very reasonably about what you've, what you've found. So what will I do with this couple from Beijing? Well, we'll probably have them over 
and we will invite them to a meal because they're good Chinese they will probably bring some food also we'll talk about it we will at that point uh, will say do you mind it's our family's practice to pray before a meal and then uh, they've always allowed that we'll pray and the conversation believe me flows from there with the Chinese family you know one guy was wonderful said you know my grandmother was Chinese <laughs> I just couldn't believe it but other people uh, you know it's very interesting you know want to know about this strange cultural practice of praying and then you have the wonderful experience of going oh no 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 it's not cultural this is not an American thing you know Americans America is not a Christian nation in that sense otherwise you're going to be very confused you know and then you begin it's just wonderful so I would be honest about my weaknesses and then I would live my life as it actually is in front of them and uh, conversation flows we've talked a little bit about the the cul-de-sac and, and the neighborhood in the New Testament Paul proclaimed the gospel to Nero and those higher up many of our church fathers proclaimed the name of Christ to leaders should we follow that model once again what does it look like for us to proclaim the message to those in authority and kind of that idea Ravi of going upstream to impact culture I think it's very, very important, very critical. One of the things we get to believe in ourselves is that people in very high positions somehow don't feel the same rigors and strains of family life and personal struggle and personal temptation. Some of the most uh, painful tears I have ever witnessed come from people very successful in the athletic world, for example, in the sporting world. Their lives have been shattered by their indiscipline off the field while they've been so disciplined on the field. This year alone, I've had the privilege of addressing the uh, prayer breakfast in Ottawa, Canada, and the prayer breakfast at the um, Hall Palace of Westminster in London, where there were about 900, I think, attending the prayer breakfast, members of the House of Lords and House of Commons and so on. First of all, it's a very scary place to be because you're as nervous as you can ever be for several reasons. Number one, you're on the bastions of power and you know they're already prejudiced, some of them, in what you're gonna say. Number two, your time is very limited. You're given maybe 15 minutes, 18 minutes, maximum 20 minutes. And number three, you have to be very careful how you say it. You can't be in your face. But you know what, I'll tell you the truth. Every place we have gone where I could take about 80% of my time to analyze the global situation and the last 20% of it on why I believe Christ is the answer to that in individual lives and solutions, we have never had anything except a lineup of leaders afterwards who will clasp your hand and say to you, I'm so grateful to you for what you have just said to us today. After speaking at the UN prayer breakfast, there was a long lineup and one man said to me, I come from an atheistic country and I don't like being in the UN. He said, I'm away from my family, I miss my family, I'm a very lonely man here. And every day I've wondered why I have ever come here. He said, today I have found the answer, it is so that I could find God. You know, and that this is two or three years ago, so it doesn't apply to the person now, but the president of the UN immediately after that asked if I would come to his office and pray for him and his staff. You know, people, the world is becoming a very difficult place. One president in Africa told me, our cumulative wisdom is not able to meet the daunting challenges of our time. 
<laughs> Sorry. Just to match yours. Okay. <clears throat> Any, anybody who thinks that it's easy to do it is mistaken, but anyone who thinks it is impossible to do it is also mistaken. You have to be there. In fact, our ministry has just hired a former ambassador from Malaysia to join our staff. And his job is going to be to be ambassador for Christ to the ambassadors of this world, traveling all over the world, doing Bible studies with ambassadors in various cities. And uh, he is a tremendous, tremendously committed person to Christ. Pray for leaders, be there, pray for those around them. There's a Joseph, there's a Nehemiah, there's a Daniel in all of these places who may have the ear of the king. And they are the ones who can to help turn the heart of those people for the, for the sake of the gospel. Tony, if I can just... Uh, Please. <coughs> I, think, I think everything that uh, Ravi just said is true. And um, I, I think that although the apostle was trying to be all things to all men, I think there's another, another lesson also, and that's that in some senses I try to be the same person no matter who I'm with. And so I think it is right for the church. It is very hard to be an authority. Now that I'm pastor of a largest church, I realize how difficult that is and how much people in much grander situations, how difficult it must be. And so for us to, for them to know that we care for them and are supporting them um, and trying to speak truth to them and be the same person. I would say that um, James makes it quite clear. And, and, you know, I don't get to pray with the president of the United Nations, okay? That's, Ravi Zacharias does, and that's, thank God, uh, I now know him enough as a, as a man that I would trust him in that situation. Um, but I think what James makes clear is that the body of Christ is not to show favoritism, right? So there's this other principle of that, if the wealthy come amongst us or the important, that they get treated the same way as the poor. And so I would say that the body of Christ in its totality is supposed to love those in authority and pray for them and to tell them the message of the Lord Jesus. But we are to be known as a people with a prejudice for those who are on the fringes and the poor and caring for them as well. Otherwise, and this is not why we would do things or not do things, but let me tell you what the culture would do. If your, if your um, ministry is primarily to those in power, that will be seen as something that you are doing for your own benefit. Whereas if you're dealing with those who are on the fringe and broken and poor, people have difficulty understanding why the heck you would do that. So the church, bless her heart, is supposed to be, you know, proclaiming the Lord Jesus everywhere from the halls of power to the worst slums there are and everywhere in between, okay? So if you do not have the opportunity to meet leaders, don't worry about that. Pray for them. If you, if you have the opportunity to deal with someone very disenfranchised, um, please do that as well. What I really love is when I meet someone who is exactly the same person with someone who's very, very poor and someone who's very, very empowered. That, that I think is a sign of holiness. Wade, can you talk a little about how do we use the arts appropriately as a vehicle for gospel proclamation? Yes. No, 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 no. No, actually, it's not. It's not easy. Um, I, that's one another thing that my congregation shares with you in Charlottesville. Phil, we've just started something called the New City Arts Initiative, which is supposed to be doing three things. <clears throat> It's supposed to be doing education, which means educating the church about the place of the arts, because the church is in a very much a 
small love, big hate relationship with the arts, isn't it? And it actually is part of that Gnosticism, discomfort with embodiment in any form. And so educating the church about brothers and sisters who are in the arts, but it's also to be about education of the Christian artists because they themselves are under such pressure, misunderstood and not trusted by the, the supernatural family and having people very distant from the gospel who seemingly understand them very well. And so trying to educate a real theology of the arts. But the second thing is that we're trying to do shalom projects, which means that we're trying to, to form all kinds of consortiums of people that are gathering together and learning to use the power of the arts and creativity for good uh, in our community, sometimes um, working with and collaborating with people very distant from the gospel, uh, sometimes not. And so um, I'm very interested in what this congregation is learning about that. We, we are just having our very first meeting two weeks from now. Uh, it's called Taking It to the Streets and some people who really understand how to use the power of the creative arts for good in a community and for community development. We're having them come down and teach us, so watch this space. Yeah, I think it's a great place to be. But just, just as much as it is any professional group, the artists started first at our church, but we're also, as I hinted at, our attorneys are getting together and are banding together to do some very interesting things against payday loans. Our physicians are getting together and doing a project access, which is going to allow health care for people that are not insured to be done by Christian and non-Christian uh, physicians. Uh, teachers, we're forming all kinds of different professional groups. So I think I just want to plug the artists because that's, one that's seemingly uh, very difficult for the church, but it's the same for any kind of professional group, learning to use your cultural power for the good of your neighbor rather than just asking bankers to deliver, to deliver Thanksgiving turkeys to poor people in the ghetto, which is a fine thing to do, but wouldn't it be better to gather bankers together for them to think about what does being a Christian banker do and what could we do together? You know, let them take the Thanksgiving turkey to the ghetto, but how about if they did something much larger than that. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> Ravi, this was written for you. As a practicing Roman Catholic and someone who is exploring becoming a Christian, I'm often confused as to the core reason to change and become a Christian. Why do I need to be born again? I think Wade should answer that one. As a churchman. Uh... I know... Uh, lots of Roman Catholics who are Christians. And that you ask the question in that way makes me really want to talk to you. Because although I am not Catholic myself, I've tried to become Catholic twice. Because if there was, if there was real evidence that there was but one true church, I wanted to be part of it. For various reasons, I could not come to that. Those Roman Catholics that I know, we have lots of people coming to my church right now. They kind of weird me out. They go, I'm Catholic. I'm not going to stop being Catholic but I'm coming to your church. And you go, right. The Catholics that I know that are Christians are Christians for the same reasons that Presbyterians I know are Christians, or Methodists I know are Christians, or Baptists that I know are Christians. And that, that, that is that they have been born again by the Spirit of the living God. They may be aware of when that occurred to them, or they may not be. And so that's why one has to talk very carefully about, about this, right? Sometimes it is like thunder and lightning from above and you are stricken and you know it has occurred to you. But if you've grown up in the Christian community, it, you may not have that kind of experience. There is, no, there is normative theology, meaning that fits everyone, 
being born again is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. There is not normative experience. And so I would want to be very careful that you're not amongst a bunch of Christians that are telling you that you have to experience that birth in the same way that they have. That's what we'd have to do some very careful thinking. I, at this point, I do not have to ask people to leave the Roman church. I tell them where I think that they are very, very seriously mistaken about things. But if they are with me in terms of how it is that people are actually reconciled with the living God, then it's not my place to tell them that they have to leave that church. That's my answer. That's how I'm living with it. Hope that makes sense to whoever that was. I'll leave it with that. <laughs> Ravi, I've heard you say, don't cut off a nose, then give a flower. <laughs> how do you convey that absolute truth without cutting off a nose and show the need for repentance without causing a rift? I think um, if you attack the person rather than the belief, you cut off the nose. And you know, the difference between a war on a real battlefield and the warfare we're in is that on a, real, on a, on a material battlefield, they are there to vanquish the enemy. We are there to win the enemy, not to vanquish them. And so you always, I think what Wade said earlier, very important, very important to underscore, when you're talking to your neighbor or whatever, or a friend or somebody on a plane, uh, admit some of the struggles you're having. Be prepared to dialogue from a position of vulnerability, not from a position of higher altitude that I'm telling you now and you listen to me. The moment they get that impression, they're actually quietly turning you off. But the moment they glean that you too have wrestled through issues and wrestled through issues with your family, they feel they can connect to you or you can connect to them. The most difficult thing in a debate or an open forum is not to go for the person. It's very easy to go for the person and you start fighting the individual and then you may end up winning the argument but you've actually lost the person in the process. I had a professor of apologetics and um, Someone in the audience will know exactly whom I'm talking about. He had eight degrees, three of them were PhDs. And I remember listening to one of his earliest debates during the days of the God is Dead movement. And he was so merciless with the opponent, basically pulverized him. The guy was just flayed by the intellectual capacity of the Christian philosopher so that three quarters of the way through, people started feeling sorry for the other guy and uh, almost became the proper up of him and felt he was ill-treated or not properly respected. So you always respect the person, but you deal with the ideas. I will often say something like this. I'll say, you know, I appreciate hearing that. I've wrestled through this way of thinking too. I know friends who are wrestling this way, this with this thinking, and I'll tell you why. I think you have to get beyond it and then you move them towards an answer that'll clear the track to just get them one step further. It was my mother who used to say, once you've cut off a person's nose, there's no point giving them a rose to smell. And so the sweet aroma has to be measurable in their own, the nostrils of their own sensitivities. But if you've removed that capacity, they're just not gonna sense it at all. You have to go the route of winning the person while dismantling the argument. And I think that's the key. How did Paul do it? He found a point of reference. Then he would find a point of relevance. 
but he would never back away from the point of disturbance. I think that's the step. Point of reference, a point of relevance, without compromising the point of disturbance, and you will find then that they will test you. When he stood before Felix, what happened? He wanted to see if he would offer Felix a bribe. Because if he'd offered Felix a bribe, he would release him, and that would disprove everything he'd argued for. And Paul lived through the test, and I strongly suspect sustained the point of reference, which was righteousness, relevance, you know, which was temptation, and the point of disturbance that we stand before God ultimately to be judged. And if we check your immediate impulsive tendency and stop and ask yourself the question, am I doing this so that I could seem better or am I doing this so that it'll be more convincing to the person? And it's very important. You sometimes fail. I'll tell you, sometimes you go away from open forums and you say, I should never have answered that that way. And you learn from that and try your best not to make the same mistake the next time. Wade, how does that play into your first comment of you've got to love your neighbor before you evangelize? No, I, I think that's right. Um, I think in the midst of a relationship, well, I was very struck, and of course, Labrie is a very blessed place in some ways, but we have these big lunchtime conversations, about 14 people, and two-thirds of the time they can ask a question, one-third of the time I would come and say, let's discuss this. And out of 12 years of those, almost you know, several times a week, only once or twice did it become the kind of religious conversation that you're afraid of, where there's lots of heat and nothing goes, you know, n nothing makes sense. And I suppose the magic at Labrie is that I would stop everyone and go, okay, obviously we're all going to feel this differently or feel this deeply, and that's because it's a very important question. But let's put the question in the middle of the table, and as we talk about it, we are not attacking one another. We are talking about the merits of the case. That works at Labrie, but so rarely does it in regular conversation. And so I think that in, in regular life, having that relationship with someone uh, over the long time, going through, uh, through hard patches where they really do think that you're intolerant and that they really dislike you, but that if your love is implacable and just after them like a siege engine, I think that um, they will allow you to say things and to hold opinions that they find really, really unattractive. I, I was very struck by Schaefer. Uh, you know, he lectured and taught and wrote, but really he was a, a great conversationalist. And I think the reason that people let Francis Schaefer say such hard things to them was that they had this underlying sense that he actually did care for them and love them. And so I would think that Wade Bradshaw and his failures, when, uh, when I get in those situations, I think that the, the person that I'm in conversation with can smell and smells rightly, because I haven't cut their nose off, smells that what I'm saying is actually based on my evangelism and my apologetic is actually based not on love but on fear. I'm actually afraid that leaving the room you know, without myself and my reputation intact. And that's wholly different. I was a debater uh, long ago, and in debate, of course, the goal is to prevail in argument. And if the person you're arguing against is too stupid to see where you move the shell, too bad for them. But the goal in Christian apologetics and in evangelism is to closer and closer come to the truth, right? Which means in debate, if your adversary says something that is true, you never acknowledge that. But in conversation with your neighbor, if they say something that is true, even if it is a Buddhist neighbor, you acknowledge that and you go, you know, I think that is true. I am finding that to be true. And in fact, our religion, if it is true, actually teaches that very same thing too. Isn't it interesting that we hold that in common? And so I think that managing and praying <clears throat> through 
doing an apologetic based on fear and anger and getting to a place where you're doing it out of love and concern, your partners, and especially if you're in a relationship with them, will be able to discern the difference between those. And therein lies a world of difference. It's a little bit like your family. You know, one of the things you learn when you see your, your child for the first time, you've got all these highfalutin ideas of how you're going to teach them until you find out they're going to teach you a lot more. And one of the things they teach you is that you have to learn to be very careful on how you deal with them when they falter. I think that's the hardest thing to learn because I remember one day getting a call from a woman in one city, I'll leave unnamed, and she was shocked to find out what was going on in her daughter's private life and where that was now headed. And she just sobbed and sobbed and said, I can't go to such and such an occasion knowing what has been going on in her private life and all of this. And so I finally said to her, I said, you know, I can understand that as a parent, your heart is shattered. I can understand that. I said, as a parent, it would be for me as well. I said, but I have just one question for you. Do you want to put your daughter in a place where your voice is no longer heard? Or do you want to be in a place where your voice is still heard by her? Are you sending her into a world where she will only be listening to voices that are contrary to what you have to say to her? Or are you going to be there for her so that she will still hear a loving voice from you? It was very difficult to decide, believe me. And I recall at that time, she just cried and cried and we prayed and she said, you know, I don't want to lose her. I want to be there. I want her to hear me. It was months later she wrote me a card and said, thank you so much for allowing me to walk through that valley because I still have my daughter's ear and my voice is still heard by her. That's what we have to decide at times when the temptation is to bear down, is to ask yourself, you know, there are many books I have wanted to write on some religions. I've not, I've actually written them, but they're in a vault, they'll be published posthumously. Uh, <laughs> And the reason is, if I publish them now, I will not be heard by them. Hmm. And I need to keep the door open mm -hmm. so that I can go and be given a hearing. And so I've had to make a trade-off. And You can dump the whole thing and feel very right about it, that you have told the whole story. And the, the fact of the matter is they've heard it in a very warped way. And that's not what you want. Hmm. <laughs> I've written several books too and hidden them away for much later. No, really. So, so the next question's for him. <laughs> so for both of you, do I actively need to seek out somebody to evangelize? Or is this something where the Holy Spirit is always um, involved in bringing them my way? Raviji. <laughs> very kind of you, sir. Uh, he was very kind. He called me Raviji. G is the Hindi term for reverence. I always put as a suffix. Um, those who don't know me, call me that. Uh, <laughs> um, both. I think there are some people that God may lay upon your heart 
that not with a sort of a sort of a bullseye target on them, but someone who you think God had placed in your life who would love to hear what has happened to you and why it has happened, or would give you that moment in which to share. And there are others, I think, I just find God placed them in my path all the time. Sometimes I wish he could allow me to sleep on the plane for a little while. Uh, you know, there was a guy uh, sitting next to me once and he was putting some kind of contraption on the window on the plane. And I thought, what have I got next to out here? And there was some, all kinds of tentacles hanging out of that thing. And I almost wanted to call the flight attendant, but I decided that the Lord would call her. And he, she happened to be walking by and looked at the window and said, what is that? So he said, oh, I'm just going to track the flight path. He says, this will track the whole plane and put on my computer where it is we are at what time. She said, well, the pilot does that. You don't have to do it. He said, no, no, this is quite harmless. He said, I'm an engineer. And uh, so finally she convinced him that she would have to talk to the pilot to see if that would interfere with his mechanism or whatever it was. And then uh, he started uh, getting into some other machinery there. And then he looked at me and he said, uh, I'm an engineer. I said, well, I can see that. And then he says, but I'm also a philosopher. I said, you are? He said, yeah. I said, oh, what kind of philosopher are you? He said, I'm creating a new religion. It's a new religion that I'm designing. And he started to talk about what it was that he designed. And I finally said to him, I don't think that's a new religion. I can tell you two or three religions that actually believe what you've just told me. So a half, about 10 minutes into this, he said, how do you know so much about all these things? So I said, well, you're an engineer, I'm a philosopher, and I'm a philosopher of religion. He said, my, how did I happen to end up sitting next to you? And so we chatted, and just before he got off, he said, have you read any books? He said, because I like to read on the subject. It was a fascinating conversation. You know, we loved it. He was entertaining and very open, and I gave him my card, and he was going to track it down reading books, maybe just a kind of a first dip into the deep well that Christ offers. And there are others stories each one of us has that God puts into your path. So I would say it's not a case of do we only target somebody or do we, does God provide? I think he does both. If I might just add to that, for the vast majority of us, evangelism is such an unnatural thing that we have to be conscious about it. But what I think we can say is that if we're conscious about it with someone that we think the Lord has, quote, laid on our hearts, that you'll find that you build the kind of muscles that make you actually prepared for having something that you didn't plan on. Mm -hmm. And so I would, I would um, what? I would dare you. Remember that name that came to your mind? I would dare you to begin praying for that person, for an opportunity to love and to serve them to share the gospel with them, to get to know them well, and then see if that doesn't bring other people. I think that's one of the dynamics in the kingdom of heaven, is a little faithfulness brings more opportunity, right? Isn't that how it works? And so similarly in this way. And even for those of you who think, you know, I'm an introvert, I've got the wrong personality for it, um, I'm not as well studied as perhaps I ought to be, well, this church would love to equip you if you feel those ways, but uh, I would begin with those small steps and just see where it leads. This seems to be a hot topic these days, and Ravi, this one was written for you. How do you evangelize to a person who finds the young earth a hurdle? How do I evangelize a person who finds the young, the young earth theory a hurdle with great difficulty? That's how you evangelize them. 
And, uh, you know, I, I deal with a lot of such questions from the floor. One of the illustrations I give is something like this. During the Second World War, uh, when the Allied troops were coming into a part of France where all the German artillery was placed, they were going to be sitting ducks as the paratroopers came in. And so the intelligence report came in early that if you send the paratroopers in there, they're going to be finished. They're just going to be blown to bits. So what the Allied troops did at that time was send in paratroopers that were actually fake. They were rubber dummies with firecrackers in them. Till this day you can go and see there's a fake paratrooper hanging from the steeple of the church there in France. And as they were coming and the firecrackers were exploding, all of the artillery was used up by the Germans shooting them, but the real invasion took place somewhere else, or the real paratroopers were dropped in. Sometimes we in the church, we as Christians, spend all of our artillery on the rubber dummies while the invasion has taken place in another area, and we've lost important ground in the process. When a person asks me about that, I just say to them, look, I'm really not interested in whether it's 12,000 years old or 15 billion years old. I said, that's not what I want to waste my discussion with you on. I want to spend my time to talk to you about the fact that can you explain to me the gaps that will have to be explained no matter which position you take. And the first thing is this. No matter how you cut down physical concrete reality, you will end up with a state of affairs that the quantity does not explain its own existence. No physical quantity, however sectioned, explains its own existence. That's a fundamental law of physics. It has to look outside of itself. I said, number two, wherever you see specified complexity and intelligibility, you always know there's intelligence behind it. You can look at million stones in a perfect triangle and believe it happened over 15 billion years. But if you walked into another planet and saw one paragraph or one sonnet or one line welcoming you, you will say somebody has already been here or somebody has written this. Wherever you see specified complexity, intelligibility, you see intelligence behind it. And thirdly, within the course of human history and experience, you look at those three reasons and you find out that the only ultimate cause would have to be non-physical. The ultimate cause would have to have intelligence. The ultimate cause would be one that came into history and you find that personality does not come from non-personality. Richard Dawkins says there are four <coughs> gaps in naturalism that they have not yet solved. These are his own words. The gap of origin, how can something come from nothing? The gap of sexuality, how did it all begin? The gap of consciousness, you know, how do you really get uh, uh, consciousness from non-consciousness? And then he talks basically about the moral framework. How do you explain morality in a naturalistic framework? Those are pretty full gaps to explain. So I just say to them, let's not argue about the age of the earth. Let's talk about what it took to bring this universe into existence. And that's the pr argument I want to spend my time on. And you know the disservice we have done to some of our professors who are scientists and in the academy. We have tried to force them to come in line with a, some kind of a narrow way of thinking that they can find very difficult to defend in the academy 
and they lose all of their either credibility or they become silent in the process. I don't believe the argument ought to be spent on the age of the earth as much as it ought to be spent on can the earth be explained without a personal, moral, intelligent first cause. And that's where you spend your time in the argument. Don't waste it in this, which will blow up in your face and send you chasing rabbits in the wrong direction. The skeptic wants to make you look like a fool in that, and so that's where they will drive you. You take them back to the priority of argument, not to the tertiary issue of it. C.S. Lewis says a slow miracle is just as difficult to explain as a fast miracle. <laughs> I think that's where we hang our hats. Yeah. Uh, Wade and Ravi, what's a good required reading list for someone who's interested in developing a better understanding of apologetics? Where do we start and what should we suggest to others to read? And P.S., you are totally cool. (laughs) (laughs) I read it. Uh, I would, uh, I'm not going to suggest apologetics books other than uh, Searching for a Better God by Wade Bradshaw. Um, (laughs) No, uh, uh, Katie, what is the book by um, uh, Leslie Newbigin that so affected me? Oh, yeah, Preaching the Greeks, is that one? No, uh, that's a good one, but you know the one that that one one article's in, what is that? A Word in Season by Leslie Newbigin would be a brief book. Uh, almost anything by uh, uh, Father Newbegin. He, uh, one of the first bishops to, of the Church of South India. Uh, he, foolishness to the Greeks is a very good one. In fact, would track very much with what Ravi said today. Um, he did something on epistemology, if you can track with me for a moment, called uh, proper confidence. He did something called pluralism and uh, dealing with in a postmodern world, very helpful. So Leslie Newbegin as an author. And then I would also, as you are thinking about evangelism as evangelism, I would recommend Jerem Barz's book, The Heart of Evangelism. I think that gets not only the doctrine right, but also the ethos and the tone of voice in which you want to do your evangelism, straight up also. So The Heart of Evangelism by Jerem Barz, anything by Leslie Newbegin. <coughs> Apologetics is such a wide field, and some of you may track with some type of arguments, others with other types of arguments. For some of you, the scientific apologetic is very important, in which case any books by John Lennox would be great to pick up, or Alistair McGrath. True. Would be very, 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 very good to track his writings. Uh, As Science Buried God is the one that Lennox has just written, and uh, excellent one. Uh, If you're looking at social knowledge and uh, apologetics, anything that Dawes Guinness writes is of excellent... uh, True. (laughs) I better be careful. I don't hear that now. Always wanted to do this to you. So, So, uh, Guinness is excellent in sociology of knowledge. You know, the opening night I arrived at Cambridge, actually, Wade, uh, Leslie Newbegin delivered the address that night. And it was wonderful to hear him because I'd known of him and his great impact in India, but I'd never met him. And to hear Les Newbegin in person was just a remarkable thing. A great man passed away some years ago. My colleague Michael Ramsden spent a lot of time with Leslie Newbegin before he passed away in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, that would now, if you're looking at sort of getting an understanding, it's very seldom used 
but you, if you want to understand the old classical arguments, people like Geisler and all will introduce you to them, how, what the cosmological argument means, what the ontological argument means, what the teleological argument means. You may not use them, but it's good as an understanding of arguments once upon a time and how they worked. I think they were, they were excellent to understand in context. Dallas Willard, in his writings, because Dallas has an excellent balance between the devotional life and the intellectual life. Uh, if you go online at rzim.org, you will see a list of books that we recommend for various kinds of apologetics. We have several open forums and other material that we've written on the subject. In my own works, what is very interesting, you know, when I wrote, Margie, my wife was with me when I met with the Word Publishers in 1992 to talk about Can Man Live Without God? And I remember the vice president of Word at that time looked at me and said, this is a tough book. I would give it about a six to nine month shelf life. It was three talks I'd given at Harvard, at the Harvard Law School venue there. And I wrote it because Chuck Colson pleaded me to get into print. And I said, I'm not a writer, but he said, you gotta put this into print. And you know, that was published, I believe in 93, maybe in 92. And it's now in its 16th year of publishing. And so people still have questions on issues like that, which deals with the fallacy of a naturalistic worldview and the cogency of the, the answers of Christ. That has helped a lot of people. I'm very grateful to God that those books have. But you know, those of us in the English speaking world are privileged, we have so much. We just have to learn how to wade through it. William Lane Craig's books are very helpful also in classical apologetics. Uh, David Clark in dialogical apologetics and talking to the pantheistic worldview. David was a classmate of mine and raised in Japan, very good writer, and deals with the pantheistic worldview. So there are many. If you just get on any good website of apologetics, they'll give you a list of books. You probably will track authors more than you will titles, yeah. I was waiting for you to say, no, <laughs> you didn't. So that's good. Um, our last question as we wrap up, um, Ravi and then Wade, how, how do I spiritually lead my family and train my children in the culture of this day and protect them from the culture that, that we talked about some of the barriers to evangelism? I think we've talked as a church about the challenges of our youth and how many youth leave the church when they uh, exit the home. I'll let Wade go first. He's got a younger family. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> I had a, uh, I'll tell a story very briefly. I had a family, very well-intentioned family, loved their children very much. I think five children, homeschooling them all, came to my office to say that we have to leave the church. Oh, why is that? Well, because and they explained some things that their children had heard in youth group. Not from the leadership, of course, but from other youth. And I said, I can certainly understand uh, why you're doing this. Uh, because we all have to protect our children to some extent. However, you also know, because they're very wise followers of Jesus, you also know that there comes some time where you won't be able to pr protect your children from everything that's out there. And so you're trying to make a tactical decision about where and when that should happen. And I said, but if you're thinking that the church, and I mean this very tenderly, okay? If you're thinking that the church is the one place where your children will be safe from hearing certain kinds of things, you need to know that I, as the pastor for outreach, am working against you. 
because our culture is getting so far from the law of God uh, and there's such confusion that I'm actually trying to, I realize that the church increasingly is going to have very awkward people in its midst doing very wrong things. So, such that, that the church, as she used to in the past, but just for a long time in American culture thought she didn't have to, we're going to have to do things like train people to be good husbands and wives, train people to be good parents. But that's because people, how to, how to say this? You do not have to have your act together to come to Trinity Presbyterian Church. If you come and live amongst us, we will introduce you to the Lord Jesus and help you get your act together. And so those people knew in some ways that I was right, but they felt that they had to leave the church, but they knew that I was also right, that the church was a hospital where sick people could come. And as the culture gets further and further away, and, and the funny thing was I said, in the long run, I actually think your children will be better off from meeting the, the idiocy within the bounds of the church and watching how we deal with it and how we love them even though they're saying things that are false and how we train them to leave those ways and do new ones rather than only knowing good and upstanding people. But I do know that it's a very difficult thing. Listen, I do know this is a very difficult thing. Okay. I have a daughter who goes to school where the, <laughs> they held up a Bible recently and said, some idiots still believe that this is God's word. And she came home and told me that. And I said, I would be one of those idiots. Okay. I'm not pulling her out of that school. Um, but uh, she knows that she's learning some things at her school that are antithesis to what her father believes is absolutely central. You know, it had been very interesting, this, something that crops up within me as an apologist, Wade. You know, it had been interesting if somebody had held up a Quran and asked the teacher, do some idiots still believe this too? And then you would have found out immediately the selective attack that they make upon the Bible, and which really is a compliment to the Christian faith. They know we can take it and leave their heads attached after that, because we do not come back them. It's true. The way, the way reality goes, that's the way it is. You know, the longer I am in this journey, the more I respect the past and wished we could do things a little differently. One of the things I would do very differently is I'm an early morning person. My children were late night kids. And by nine o'clock in the evening, my worldview changes. <laughs> but by 5 a.m. in the morning, their worldview is non-existent. And I'm up and about and doing my work and my reading and my writing and all of that. Actually, when I write my books, I'm up at four. It's the best time for me. But I turn in early. I get my sleep as a result. And so they would come springing into bed and wanting to chat, and I could barely keep my head awake, you know, and say, my goodness, do we really have to talk about the age of the earth at 9.30 at night? You know, and of course we could, we did. And so I was sorry I didn't do that. I didn't meet them on their terms and in the way they had their needs. And so for us parents, I would just say to you, redefine your availability. You have to be available when they are. And it happens more incidentally than it does deliberately. True. 
you can't just sit down on the couch and preach a sermon. My daughter came home one day, she was, she was, she's a bubbly kid, Naomi said, Dad, one of my classmates is graduating and her father owns a car dealership and he gives all of his kids a car when they graduate. What do we get? I said, a free sermon. Sit down, I said, you'll get a free sermon. They still remember that, she still remembers that she was sorry she asked. Um, but you know, kids really do love you as, your, as their parents, as a rule. They really want to hear from you, but not when it's convenient for you and on your terms and in your style. They want to hear it in their style and in their way and what communicates to them. Now, you can equip them that my oldest daughter never liked to talk. She would write notes. And so one friend of ours told us, write notes back. So at nighttime, my wife would leave a note on her night table, and next morning we'd have a note on our night table, and it was <laughs> wonderful to exchange letters from next rooms, you know. And uh, it was the precursor of email, which we all do now. But she's, but you know, if you ask Sarah a question, she'll answer it. You don't even have to ask Naomi a question, she'll be answering all kinds of questions you never ask. She's bubbly. Nathan, you could ask him how a whole evening went and he'll have just one word, great. And you say, who won? Our team? What was the score? This is the way you got to pry it out of the boy. He just is a man of very few words, unless of course, dad, can I get some miles to go to see so-and-so? Then it's a long preamble story why he needs 20,000 miles from my Delta frequent flyer so he could fly and go and see a friend who's celebrating his 18th birthday or something like that. They're all different. And you have to treat them in their individual points of communication. If I were to redo it all again, I would do it very differently to the way I did it. And one of the first things I would do is spend more time with them than I did because I'll tell you what, the years go by like lightning. And then you say, where, where did it all go? When I dropped my daughter Sarah off at Covenant College in, in Lookout Mountain. True. <laughs> I got on the highway on 75 and I'd spent the first day and a half and I was flying out of there and I remember pulling over on the side of the highway and just crying my heart out and saying Lord I can't believe this day has come from your wee little girl she has turned 18 now and I was leaving her and you know what when they come back they're adults because now they've got other voices they're listening to so here's the thing you leave with them the love for the family, their commitment to each other. They need to know they're loved. Number two, teach them how to love God. How to love Him in the time they spend with Him and how they learn to give to His causes. How they learn to worship in spirit and in truth. Teach them the best things you know how of how to love God. And when they are old, it shall come back to them and they will remember it. Give them the best of what you know and let them know you really do love them. And when they know that, they will come to you in the most important decisions of their lives and let them get their wings and soar in a way that God has for them, not just the way you and I may have to them. In my book, The Grand Weaver, I try to unfold that God has a beautiful pattern for lives that are submitted. And when those patterns emerge, you yourself will say, Lord, I would never have done it this way. And thank God, Lord, you didn't do it my way. 
They are jewels that God has given to you and let those jewels shine. My wife is here. I give her more credit than I give myself. If, I, if it weren't for her, they wouldn't be where they are today because she was there when I was not and she met them in their deepest needs uh, and brought them to where they are by God's grace. So just let them know you love them and equip them with the best of what you have and God will bring it back to the storehouse at the time they need it most. Can I illustrate it this way and I'll close. I said to my daughter Naomi, she works with women in the sex trafficking industry and children with AIDS. I didn't even know a month ago, she was two months ago, she was in Pakistan. I didn't even know that. She told my wife, don't tell dad. <laughs> and then I'm meeting her in California for some meetings and we're sitting in the lobby and she said, dad, I think you need to know I just got back from Lahore. I said, what? You were in Pakistan? And yet, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, dad. And she, she's involved in humanitarian work, looking for needs and she's a tiny little tyke. My mother said, the strongest pepper comes in the smallest sizes, and that's Naomi. So one day I said to her with my forehead in my hands, I said, Nimi, why do you do such dangerous things and go to such high-risk places? And she said, Dad, when we were young and we asked you that, you told us we had to learn to trust God. Now it's your turn. I asked her, have you ever thought of becoming an apologist? Her answer is, that's it, that's it, thank you. Please, give Ravi and Wade a big round of applause.